This talk by John Sutherland called Kawan Way and Dreams is the eighth talk of the Practices of the Night Retreat given at Mountain Cloud Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico in May 2011. I'd like to close this morning's session with one last piece of the mosaic, which is um, from our own koan tradition. And um, as as I'm thinking about how the koan tradition holds dreams and these practices, it seems as though it brings up um, a lot of the questions that have run through the weekend having to do with effort and intention versus a kind of relaxation, you know, into into things, um, and about methodology and technique, um, which we've had a lot of because we're, we're dealing with practices, we're dealing with, with methodology to a great extent. Uh, and I was thinking that, that in contrast to that, the, in the koan tradition beginning in, in China with the Hangzhou school that Joan dreamed about last night, um, the, you, you have a, a different kind of view, which is that if you, if you do the, the work of um, getting free in the way that the koans offer, and you change in... in the ways that um, occur when, as you become more and more free, which also means free to be generous, I think, um, free to be unafraid, free to be courageous, free, free to do a lot of things. Um, it turns out that how you approach anything is how you approach everything. That instead of meeting different circumstances in your life, life or different parts of your life with techniques for each part or circumstance, you know these are my dream techniques. This is my this is my morning technique. This is my workplace technique. This is my difficult relationship technique. Right? <laughs> instead of having a sort of armamentarium of techniques for various situations, um, something happens where where we develop a way of being in the world that kind of works in, in all those circumstances. So I was thinking about the, the story uh, I've talked about a, a couple of times before where the, the a Korean son teacher, son is the word that's chan in Chinese and zen in Japanese, uh, sonsunim, sung san, was asked um, to give a, a talk about, about son <clears throat> approaches to death. And, um, and, and as, as he was being walked to the podium, he said, oh, I don't have anything to say about that. We, you know, we believe that we will die as we live. And the sort of flustered um, uh, uh, now a producer of this, of, of this event said, well, can't you tell us something? There's all these people out there waiting for you to say something. And he said, well, yes, I guess I could say one thing, which is with your last breath, as you are dying, ask how may I be of service? Okay, that's wow. You know, that's 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 turning everything on its head, and that's I think the fundamental orientation of the koans is we don't have anything to say about death. How you live your life is how you'll die. How how you live your life is how you'll dream. It's how you'll sleep. Um, 
and that the, the result of living the koan way is what that will seem like to you is that the right question to ask as you're dying is how can I help? How can I be of service? That's a profound transformation of consciousness that I don't think any technique can get you to. It's something else. It's something deeper than that. Although techniques can certainly help cultivate the field for that to grow in. So um, I wanted to talk just a little bit about some, some of the ways that dreams appear in the koan tradition and begin by using some stories from the Guiyang school. The Guiyang school is one of the schools of classical China um, founded by Guishan and, and uh, carried on by his, his um, student Yangshan. Um, so I was talking about the, the Guiyang school, one of the, the classical Chinese schools of koans, and, um, which w- was founded by Guishan and carried on by his student Yangshan and was called the school of equals because of the way people treated each other. And you can, there's something in the quality of the stories that has this sense of um, great, great equality among teachers and students and, and great love among everybody involved. Um, and they also held more than any other school, as near as I can tell, the, a connection to the Sambhogakaya, which is where we've been spending our time this week. A connection to dreams, a connection to um, mudras and certain physical exercises which have been lost, but were probably something like qigong, and a sense that you could do things with your body and move energy in certain ways. And there are little traces of them that remain in the koans. And anytime you've got anything that feels sambhogakayish in a koan, usually you'll find that it's a guiyang descendant who's behind it somehow so they're very interesting and dear to me also the fact that I I share Yangshan's personal name so um, there's that connection as well Anyway, so so in the Guiyang school and in the in the koan tradition in general, dreams were taken quite seriously. They were taken so seriously that in some cases, someone's dream actually became a koan that we still work with today. So one of those famous ones is called Yangshan's Sermon from the Third Seat, and um, I'll just say that in here there's a, there's a. Um, a reference to the four propositions and the hundred negations. And you don't have to understand this except sort of what it refers to. The, the four propositions are things are, things aren't, things neither are nor aren't, things both are and aren't. And then the 98 or 100, um, depending on the version, negations are the hundred pro- propositions that roll out from those four fundamental propositions. When they appear in koans, what they mean is all of that crazy philosophy tangle. Okay, that's that's what it means. That the koans were um, a way of trying to cut through and find your feet on the ground. Okay, Yangshan sermon from the third seat. Yangshan dreamed he went to Maitreya's realm. Maitreya is the Buddha to come, the next Buddha. He went to Maitreya's realm and was led to the third seat. 
A senior monk struck the the stand with a gavel and announced, Today the one in the third seat will preach. The first time I read this, I wondered if this was like a Chan teacher's anxiety dream. (laughs) (laughs) Yangshan arose, struck the stand with the gavel and said, The truth of the Mahayana is beyond the four propositions and transcends the hundred negations. Listen, listen. So in the place of all of that philosophical tangle and is it or isn't it or is it both and not and all of that, Yangshan offers, even in a dream, listen, listen. And that's a whole practice right there. And that's really fundamentally the koan practice. Just listen. You'll, you'll hear what you need to hear. You'll hear everything there is to hear. So then we have um, an intimation that, that there was a um, tradition that, that at a certain point in your um, spiritual life, in your awakening, that the dreams start telling the truth. Because Guishan, his teacher, commented that Yangshan was now a sage because his dreams were starting to tell the truth. Um, but I want to talk just for a second about the nature of that truth because I think in koans it's something quite different than fats um, and the clearest the clearest description of that actually comes from um, Ursula Le Guin from a book she wrote called Changing Planes and she wrote, she wrote about a culture in which people never sleep and therefore never dream and, she, and then she says they tell no stories and so have no use for language Without language, they have no lies. They live in pure fact. But they can't live in truth because the way to truth is through lies and dreams. That feels very much like the koan tradition to me. So if dreams were taken seriously... They were also held lightly, as we do with almost everything. And there's also this sense of they're not special. You don't have, you don't turn in a special direction to, with a bunch of special techniques toward your dreams. That you, that your dreams come along in the same way that everything else comes along and you deal with it in the same way. So here's a, here's a lovely story about the school of equals and what life was like uh, living amongst them. Guishan had been lying down one day taking a little afternoon nap he's the, he's the teacher and the two other people in the story are his two students um, Guishan said to, to Yangshan let me tell you about a dream I just had please listen Yangshan lowered his head and listened to Guishan's dream and it's interesting that the dream isn't recounted because the content of the dream is not the important thing Guishan asked please interpret this dream for me Yangshan brought a bowl of water and a towel to him. That's his interpretation. Guishan scrubbed his face, right? He's just getting up from a nap. Guishan scrubbed his face and then sat for a while. So hear this, you know, hear this. I've just had a dream. Please interpret it for me. Here, wash your face. Okay, I'll wash my face. Thank you. Great interpretation. It just rolls along. It's just part of life. You just include it along with everything else. Then Xiangyan, another student, came into the room. Guishan said, Just now Yangshan demonstrated the highest level of supernatural powers by handing him the bowl and the, and the towel. 
Xiang Yan said, and this is this is funny. This is the idea of a, of a, of a Chan joke. I was in the other room, but I perceived this clearly. <laughs> Not the only one with supernatural powers. Guishan said, "Okay, now it's your turn to interpret to Xiang Yan." Xiang Yan made a cup of tea and brought it to Guishan. Guishan said, "You two have supernatural powers that are beyond the abilities of Shariputra and Modgalyayana, who were two of the Buddha's main disciples." So just in bringing a, a bowl and a towel to wet, clean your face after taking a nap, making tea and bringing it, all of that, supernatural powers beyond the Buddha's disciples. So that's how they're held in the tradition. Um, that they were taken seriously and that they were considered a part of practice might come as a surprise to people who've done American Zen practice because um, there's a lot of emphasis on makyo, if you run into makyo, which are demonic visitations. And so any kind of image that arises when you're meditating or any other time, you're supposed to turn away from as a demonic visitation and pay no attention to. this has been a really strong emphasis on the West, but it's actually not rooted so much in the tradition in the sense that it's, too, it's gone too far over in that direction. Um, we've thrown the visionary baby out with the fantasy bathwater, and that's really a shame. Um, it's, it's come to be that any kind of, of event of the imagination, act of the imagination, <clears throat> is seen as a distraction from getting free. And I think one of the things we're really exploring and have made vivid this weekend is that, in fact, they can be um, helps to getting free, gateways toward getting free, not just distractions from it. <clears throat> but I think that, that you, it's important to make a distinction between fantasies and image here. And I think that what, what originally what people were talking about in Zen when they talked about Makyo was fantasy. So fantasy is the stuff that we generate ourselves. Fantasy is a completely personal and interior event. Um, they're usually either, you know, as Piper was saying, a, 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 a projection into the future, what's about to happen, or a review of the past, you know. Oh, if I'd only said, you know, the next time she says that to me, I'm going to be ready, right? That's so, so fantasies tend to, um, anything, anything that um, supports our longings or our grievances mm-hmm. is probably a fantasy. And they really come out of the territory of what we already know. A fantasy is made up of what we already know, where we already are, what our, what our current state of, of heart-mind is. Um, an image is something really different. An image is like a koan or a dream in that it comes from some larger place, not just the territory of what we already know, but from beyond that. And it beckons us into that larger territory. And something, you know, I've said in the past is that if the world has the generosity to send images our way, to beckon us out of that small space of what we already know, let us have the courtesy to welcome them and to listen to what they have to say and to see what it's like to step out of the realm of fantasy into the realm of imagination, which is a risky thing because it's moving into the territory of what we don't know. 
But I think one of the powers of the koans is that they're not life questions. They're not the questions that we're ruminating about all the time. They're actually um, questions that come from another place. And they ask us to consider them rather than... um, supporting our continued rumination about the questions we already had. So they give us an opportunity to see things in a really fresh way and then to make the question our own. Um, if we're wondering about what direction we should take in our, in our work lives, you know, what should I do or in our artistic lives, what should I be doing, what's the next project, that's a, that's a, a personal way of asking the question. If we take up the koan, the stone woman gives birth in the middle of the night. What happens then? What if we approach the question of what to do in our work lives through the koan instead of through the simple question, what should I do? What does it mean the stone woman gives birth in the middle of the night? What does that mean impersonally in the large territory of what I don't know? And what happens when I make it my own? What happens when that becomes my question? Who is the stone woman? What is giving birth in the middle of the night for me? So, um, fantasies have a way, this is, and Melanie, this is getting back to what you were talking about. Fantasies have a way of cutting us off from the larger world. They, they pull us inward. They, we implode around a fantasy the kinds of images that can occur in koans and dreams if we let them, if we take dream images like koans, those kinds of images connect us to the larger world. They, they move us past that boundary between imagination and what else there is so that suddenly there's no, there's no boundary, there's no line anymore. So it's a turning outward, it's, a turning, it's, a, it's an enlargening, a turning into the, into the larger world and worlds all the bodies, all the bodies of the tree kayas. Um, and if we, if we take dreams like that um, in the same kind of way, then dr- looking at our dreams, living with our dreams, can become a kind of continuous checking in. How is the dream body now? How is the dream body not now? Not necessarily, what does my unconscious want me to know? But how is the dream body now? Giving it, its, giving it respect, giving it its autonomy, and checking in. What's going on with that? So then, quickly, the kinds of dreams that appear in the, in the koan tradition are um, encouraging dreams. And this is actually, I, I wanted to give you an example of this because the turtle keeps coming up in, in, throughout the weekend. And this, this happened to Shuto, one of the, the great old Chinese teachers who had, as a, as a boy, I think as a boy, as a, or a very young man, had met Wei Nang, the sixth ancestor, who was the end of the ancestral line in China. And the next thing that happened was the koans. And um, Shuto was reading a text and he had a, he had a kensho. He had, he had a big realization. And there was something in that experience um, that felt so important to him. And that night he dreamt that he and Wei Nung, the sixth ancestor who he'd had this glancing acquaintanceship with, were riding on the back of a great tortoise swimming in the sea. 
And um, that dream gave Chateau the confidence and inspired him to write taking part in the gathering, the Sandokai, which is part of our liturgy. And if, if um, the lovely people from the kitchen were not waiting at the door to feed us and you were not waiting to eat what they have to feed us, we would read. But you can take a look at it. So from that dream, he received the... The, the encouragement to write something that endures um, over a thousand years later. Dreams can also be diagnostic. They can show us where we are in our um, journey of awakening and what we need to attend to. So just one of many examples of that is um, Bodhidharma wrote about how dreams can show you where you are in your practice He said, if while you're dreaming at night, you see the moon and stars in all their clarity, it means the workings of your mind are about to end. And this is a good thing. (laughs) But don't tell others. (laughs) I love that. So I have a sample of of two, uh, two two Zen teachers. uh, um, And I asked about this, um, seeing the moon and stars in all their clarity means something's about something's about to happen and one had a had a dream the night before Kensho of the night sky and the constellations moved and changed and became the shapes of bodhisattvas in the sky and then the other one um, had a dream of the constellation Orion becoming Guanyin um, so sort of confirmation of what Bodhidharma was saying And then he also said, Bodhidharma, and if your dreams aren't clear, as if you're walking in the dark, it's because your mind is masked by cares. Which is kind of obvious, but remember that in this tradition, to have what are called disordered dreams are seen as a sign of purification. It means you're ready to practice, Bodhidharma said. When your dreams get chaotic and things are getting stirred up and there's a kind of purification going on, that means you're ready to really practice. Um, Dreams can be prophetic for telling the future. Uh, And there's a whole bunch of examples of that, but I will skip them for the moment. Uh, But there's an interesting question about how a prophetic dream could work. And the sense was that um, while causes and conditions are always, there's this sort of flow of causes and conditions through time from the past into the future, they're not set in stone, especially as you get, they get further and further away, there's still the possibility of changing things. And so a prophetic dream is talking about when causes and conditions are beginning to coalesce past the point where they can be redeemed, past the point where we can have an effect on them. And so there's a sort of, hey, is this what you want to happen? Or do you want to, do you want to intervene? Do you want to co-create in some way before this is, the causes and conditions have set the future in stone? So they're an invitation to, um, to create something different than the way things appear to be tending. And finally, uh, dreams in this tradition can be healing, can be literally physically healing. There was a a Japanese um, monk named Miyoe of the the Middle Ages who his whole life kept a dream journal, I think 50 years of a dream journal. It's an amazing document, some, some of which has been translated into English. And at one point, he was seriously ill. He had some gastrointestinal thing. 
and, and was having diarrhea. And he dreamed of an Indian monk who poured a fizzy broth into a white bowl and gave it to him to drink. And when he woke up in the morning, he had the taste of the broth in his mouth and uh, his, his intestinal problem was gone. Um, and I'll just close with another story about Mioe because to me it's indicative of what happens when you live a life in the way we've been examining, exploring this weekend. What are the results of that over time? Later in his life, um, Mioe was living somewhere else, but he had lived when he was younger on an island that he really loved. And for him, everything was so alive. Everything was so sentient. Everything, everything just, um, just was alive, so alive to him that he found out that someone he knew was going to visit the island. And so he wrote an, a letter to the island to explain how much he missed it and just to say hello and ask how the, how the island was doing. Um, and he was absolutely serious, uh, serious about it. And the courier asked him, "Well, how am I to deliver this this letter?" And Mioe said, "Just just stand in the middle of the island under a tree, read the letter, and then let it go in the wind, and you'll have delivered it." So the promise of a life led with um, with this kind, with including dream including the nightlife, including everything we've been talking about into our lives in the same way we do everything else, turning the same kind of attention, the same kind of care, meeting it with the same kind of generous spirit, listening, listening, listening. Um, You end up thinking islands are alive and writing letters to them, and I can think of a lot worse ways to spend your time. Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.